Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome back to New Books in Science, Technology, and Society, part of the New Books Network. I'm your host, Lance Thurner. Today I'm going to be speaking with Professor Allison Bigelow about her recent book, Mining Language, Racial Thinking, Indigenous Knowledge, and Colonial Metallurgy in the Early Modern Iberian World, out from the University of North Carolina Press in 2020. Mining Language examines how Spanish and Portuguese imperialists, both in the Pacific and in the American colonies, learned from, adopted, and appropriated indigenous knowledge about metals and minerals uh, in their quest to reap profits from their overseas holdings. For listeners unfamiliar with the Spanish and Portuguese empires in the early modern period, it's important to note that precious metals were the lifeblood of the Iberian empires. This was especially true for the Spanish Empire, which founded its imperial wealth first on the gold of the Caribbean and then off silver mines developed in northern Mexico and in the mountains of Peru. Historians have long recognized and appreciated that the extraction of New World minerals depended on the exploitation of indigenous and African bodies. Alison Bigelow's Mining Language is one of the first works to suggest that imperial wealth was also built upon the knowledge of colonized peoples. But this isn't only a story about Iberian imperialism. Rather, New World silver, refined and minted as the Spanish Real, became the world's first global currency. And as such, it enabled the economic developments, including the slave trade, that defined this early age of economic globalization. Fittingly, then, metallurgy and mineralogy were high sciences, and indeed many of the most prestigious individuals and institutions of scientific knowledge were metallurgists, alchemists, and schools of mining. Therefore, this book, Mining Language, affects not merely how we understand an obscure field of knowledge production but also forces us to reconsider the nature and methods of European imperialism generally. And so with that, and without further ado, I give you my interview with Alison Bigelow. Professor Alison Bigelow, welcome to the show. Thank you, Lance. Uh, So I love this book, and I think it makes a really important and interesting intervention in our understanding, not only of the Spanish and Portuguese empires, but of science and imperialism generally. Um, I'd like to begin with just um, how did you come to write this book, and and why did no one write it before you? Man, that is a big question. Um, I guess it's... It started as a dissertation in an English department at the University of North Carolina, which is where I did my graduate work. Um, I began comparing English books of agriculture and Spanish books of mining and metallurgy. And my idea was to analyze the 
rhetorics and metaphors and symbolism of these two foundational colonial scientific enterprises. Um, and then I landed a postdoc at a history institute with no training whatsoever as a historian. Um, and it became clear to me that my emphasis on kind of symbolic domain of language was really not going to make an impression on my colleagues in history. Um, and so I would need to change my methods a little bit. And uh, the changes in methods resulted in two separate books. And Mining Language is the first of those books. Um, and in term, the second part of your question, sort of why no one has written it, um, I don't know. But I think some of it might reflect, you know, my own unorthodox um, career. I, after undergraduate, um, I, my first job was teaching English in Chile. And for two semesters, I taught on site in a copper mine. Uh, so I taught from 9 a.m. until 7 p.m., um, Monday through Thursday. And then we taught six hours of class on Fridays uh, in Iquique. So we were uh, four by three, four days in the mine, three days um, in the city. And that experience gave me a real ear for how miners spoke and the creative ways in which they would use the language of their profession um, to say things that were technically not supported by company charter and policy. Yeah. Uh, well, let me ask my question in a slightly different way, because I think maybe I was a little unclear there, which is, you know, mining is such a huge part of colonial um, history for the Spanish and, and Portuguese empires, and uh, especially silver mining, but also uh, gold mining is such an important part of our historiography. And your book, which brings this, uh, you know, fascinating dimension of how metallurgical knowledge moved uh, not only, you know, from Europe towards the Americas, but the opposite direction as well. And the many uh, uh, fascinating ways in which this was hybridized, syncretized, but also erased and uh, and disappears from the historical record is such an incredible contribution to our understanding of mining and metallurgy. And so being that this topic has been so important for historians, why have they not looked at it in this way before? Yeah, well, first, thank you for that summary of my book. That's really beautiful and, and really generous. Um, I suspect that some of the gaps in our understanding come from our different disciplinary backgrounds. So I'm trained as a literary scholar. Um, I have never taken a class in history. And when I showed up at the Omahundro Institute, I kind of thought, okay, we all work in colonial studies. We all read in the same archives, literary scholars, historians, anthropologists, religious studies, scholars, art historians. We end up in these different disciplines that are shaped by, you know, 19th century epistemologies, but at our core, we all are engaged in similar work. And after a few months at the Omahundro Institute, it became clear to me that that was not really true, that even when I sit next to a historian in an archive and we're pulling the same documents a couple days apart, uh, which happened at the Huntington Library a couple years ago and actually led to a really wonderful friendship. Um, it was clear that we were asking different kinds of questions about the source material. And that comes from our training and the way that we approach primary sources, um, the way that we think about questions of 
representative evidence. Um, that the question of whether something was representative was really important for my interlocutors at the Omohundro, and it was not something that I had ever thought of um, as a literary scholar. And so I think in part, you know, my book comes out of this experience of being trained in one field and then ending up in another. And then after my postdoc, ending up in the third field in which I have no actual training in. I'm now a professor of or associate professor of Spanish and Latin American studies. But my background is really in comparative literature coming out of an English department. And that um, combination of working in different disciplines that I have a background in and then kind of learned on the job, I think allowed me to write a book that offers a different take on the history of mining and metallurgy and um, subaltern knowledge production, for lack of a better term. Yeah. And, and, you know, it's interesting when I look at your book that a lot of the, you know, many of the sources that you're using are canonical sources in Latin American history, whether it's Gonzalo de Oviedo or Nicolas Monardes and and Jose de Acosta. Um, How have you gone about trying to use these sources to understand the production of knowledge from below? Yeah, I think um, the best source that I was able to use um, to document indigenous knowledge production is a source that's it's canonical within the field of mining studies. Um, so within the larger Latin, Amer- Latin American historiography, it's probably not as well known, but it's the Arte de los Metales de Álvaro Alonso Bárbara. Um, and I was working with this book um, primarily yet only in Spanish for the dissertation. And then during my postdoc, I began looking at the translations of Barba's book. And it was there um, looking at this one particular passage in Edward Montague's Art of Metals, where Montague mentioned oyster shells. And I thought, wait a minute, there there are not conchas in any any of these passages on amalgamating silver with mercury. So then I went back to the source text and I realized that Montague had translated the Hispanized form of Quechua that Barba uses, which is concho, as oyster shell. And that um, allowed me to go through, um, I basically to put both PDFs next to each other and mark all of the times in which there were these mistranslations um, of technical terms and technical concepts in Barba's book. That's a, and I love that example in the, in your, in your work um, about the movement of that term concha, concho, um, and as it goes from the Andes to, uh, to Europe to, and then even back to Pennsylvania from there. Uh, can you describe a little bit more about this term concha and how, where that fits in the kind of bigger history of mining in the Spanish empire. And I'm thinking about like the amalgamation method of extracting silver. And um, uh, I'm just wondering if you can flush that out a little bit and what we learn by those translations or those mistranslations. Yeah, let me give it a shot. Um, so, you know, the classic studies of mining um, by Modesto Bargallo and Peter Bakewell um, kind of, left it as, isn't it curious that it's only in 
the mid 16th century in the new world that we get these large scale amalgamation technologies. We don't know exactly why that is. Surely it was, it had to do with some combination of European, African and indigenous knowledge, but we don't have the sources to prove it. So we can, we just kind of leave it there as, hmm, isn't it strange that this happened here? What a coincidence. And um, I thought, well, I mean, surely it can't be a coincidence, right? The reason why this new technology is produced is precisely because of that combination of new ways of knowing. Um, So I was looking for methods that I could use uh, to read the canonical sources like Barba to identify those influences, influences that might not be clearly marked in the text, but might be um, able to be unearthed with a creative approach to language. Uh, And Concho is one of the uh, clearest examples, I think, of what I found. So this term Concho that Barba uses isn't Spanish and it's not Quechua. It's derived from the Quechua Concho, uh, which means sediment or eses or asientos. Uh, And so Barba takes this Quechua term and changes the vowels so that it's easier for Spaniards to pronounce Um, What I don't know is if that was the term that was actually spoken in Mines and Ingenios, or if Barba made that accommodation for the printed register. Um, I do know that it shows up in Garcia de Llanos' Diccionario of how the miners spoke. So there's some evidence that it may have been, Concho may have been the spoken form, um, but that's a, a question that the documentary record hasn't really been able to answer yet. But we'll, so what we do know is that there's this word, this Hispanized accommodation of a Quechua word um, that Barba uses in his book to describe metallurgical sediment, this thing that forms on the bottom of the mix bin if mercury is added all at once instead of in two rounds. Uh, and so then when Barba's book from the Andes is printed in Madrid, and then translated into first into English uh, in London in 1670. The translator, Edward Montague, takes this term concho, which reflects you know, a specialized technical process and a specific accommodation of the amalgamation technology as it was practiced in the Andes, and mistranslates it into oyster shell, thinking that concho and concha are the same thing, um, sort of a confusion of linguistic gender precisely at the time when early modern English is beginning to shift away from using grammatical gender. Um, So Montague's mistranslation of the term occurs at a a particular moment in the history of the English language, as well as a particular moment in English-Spanish contact and rivalry. Putting all of that Linguistic history um, into this Atlantic context then allowed me to show how um, knowledge of very specific technical processes was moving from spoken domains of Quechua into these kind of hybrid Quechuanol languages that were then recorded in print by Barba and Garcia de Llanos and then translated or mistranslated into Indo-European languages like English and then uh, German and French. And, you know, I mean, what's one of the things that's if so fascinating in that story um, and, uh, and in others that you 
uh, are tracing is the ways that not only are is this movement of knowledge, you know, within the Spanish realm, but it's getting into other European empires and eventually the post-colonial United States. And I'm wondering about uh, what you see as being sort of the uh, larger reverberations of this Iberian history of metallurgy in uh, North European empires and science. Well, that's what's part of part of the reason why this is so interesting to me is that these books are being translated by people who have no access to indigenous miners, no access to the metallurgical deposits that they're working with. And so it's not clear how any of these treatises are going to be applied practically. And at the same time that Barba's book is being pretty widely translated across Europe, um, other mining books like Agricola's De Re Metallica, um, which is you know, written in Latin from nearby Germany at a time when German miners were being used by the 16th century Elizabethan crown um, in the Royal Mining Company. Agricola's book goes untranslated into English until 1912, when um, future U.S. President Herbert Hoover and his wife, uh, Lou Henry Hoover, a geologist, translate the book uh, for the first time. So this is a really interesting question of why particular European um, scientific writers wanted to translate a book like Barba's, which they had no possibility of ever applying unless they were to um, take the Andes from Spain or something. Um, And why they didn't translate books whose knowledge systems were probably closer to their own and certainly were being used within their own kingdoms at that time. Um, I I don't know why that is. Um, I find it a really curious puzzle and probably a comment on the way in which um, the early modern global economy produce these convergences and coming together, but also um, divisions and separations. Yeah, well, it's interesting. I was thinking about metallurgy as a historical subject as compared to other scholarship on, say, botany or uh, food items and and other global commodities, um, is that, you know, in a certain sense, metals are the ultimate abstraction. You know, when once they're in circulation as coinage, uh, they are, you know, nearly as fungible as something can become. And um, they're sort of the perfectly fungible uh, commodity. Uh, but of course, the locations where the metal is produced are very uh, local. You know, they're, they're very much embedded in local conditions, both social, environmental uh, and, and so on. And in this sort of disjunction between uh, what moves on the global scale and how it's produced on the local scale seems to really reflect in the way that that knowledge is moving, um, you know, in exactly the sort of cases, the control. Yeah, and doing it in a way that's tied to and also independent of geography. I mean, Potosi is absolutely part of the Atlantic world and the Pacific world even though it's a landlocked mine. Right. Uh, And so um, uh, one of the things that I found really interesting in this book in tracing that movement and and tracing that disjuncture is the ways in which those local conditions are erased. And of course, 
as uh, well as you said, you're not a historian, but as historians, you know, we're we're always very um, uh, conscious about gaps in the archive, silences and, and places, things that are not being said. But oftentimes it's extremely difficult to figure out how those are created and and why. And I think that you've really done an amazing job in this book and some of these examples you have in being able to show exactly where and how certain kinds of knowledge is being erased and I, and, and the ways in which the exchange of that knowledge is being erased, you know, the exchange from indigenous peoples towards Europeans. And I was wondering if you could comment a little bit about your methods in doing that, um, maybe with an example. Yeah, um, thank you. I guess um, the chapter where I felt on the least solid ground or the part uh, um, about which I was the most um, uneasy is part one on gold in the Caribbean. Um, And in some ways that part evidences the methodological contributions of the book um, probably more clearly than some of the other sections. Uh, So, you know, Working on gold mining and refining in the Caribbean is a really difficult enterprise. Our records of Spanish imperial extractions are partial and incomplete. Um, and that's with an empire that documented you know, everything, just oftentimes not the things that we hoped it, it would record. Um, but then for the Tainos, we have only six full sentences of the language that remain in colonial documents. And so using a language-centered methodology is extremely difficult in this case, but it's also extremely important. Um, and so what I do in chapter one is <laughs> I, I basically started with a document that I found at the AGI, which is a petition of a vecino named uh, Pedro Lopez de Mesa, who traveled to Spain from La Vega, which is the main mining town in La Española, and petitioned for the season of gold refining to be changed from November or December to June or July. And it seems like such a small thing. And the crown kind of says, yeah, great. And they approve the change and it's ordered, uh, it's it's converted into uh, an ordenanza the next day, uh, as in one day after it was received at council. And I thought, okay, well, that's interesting. Then I began to really think about what that change would mean. Um, you know, it's there's really no question that the Spanish Empire was dedicated to the extraction of colonial wealth and the production of precious metals. And if that's the goal, it is extremely curious that they moved gold refining from the end of the year during the dry season to the beginning of the hurricane season in the Atlantic world in a colony that had just lost its other major center of gold processing to a hurricane uh, a few years earlier that happened in Buenaventura. So I thought, all right, well, that is strange. That seems to go against the the economic interests of the Spanish crown. What else could be happening here? And then I looked at the manuscript that this petition was submitted as part of. And I realized it's a a petition for a whole scale reform of um, 
La Vega and La Española in economic terms, and it has 27 different ideas, most of which are immediately dismissed by imperial counselors. They doodle in the margins, they mark some of these ideas as no puede ser, um, and they just ignore others. But this one they underlined almost um, in its entirety. So then I thought, all right, well, what, what other sources of information could this um, could this proposal contain, or where could this idea have come from? And in doing research to answer that question, I came across a creation narrative that was recorded by Ramon Panay in 1493 from Tainos living in the northern part of the island. And according to this creation story, the Taino world came into being as part of an assemblage of the rainy season, golden metals and yellow plants that grow like metals. And I thought, so if it makes no sense for Spaniards or colonists to want to align gold metals and rain, it actually aligns with Taino cosmologies and the way in which they see the world. So what if this idea, this law that becomes enacted is actually sparked by storytelling traditions from Tainos who are seeking to create narrative cohesion in a world turned upside down. And with that kind of speculative question or conjuncture, um, I tried to fill in the gaps and show how that actually might have happened. And of course I have no hard evidence for it. I don't have anything. I don't have any letters from Lopez de Mesa or a document that says, yep, I heard this story from Tainos living in La Vega and this is how it happened. Um, but by, sort of ruling out other possibilities and showing how this um, new policy, this new um, timeframe for gold processing does not align with any values that we can ascribe to white colonists or settlers or the Spanish empire. It really leaves Tainos and Afro-Tainos as the only logical source of ideas um, for that change. So that's an example of one of the methods that I use, um, thinking about language in a broader sort storytelling capacity um, to trace influences that aren't that are that are in the documents but not named. Yeah, and you know, so that brings up a really interesting methodological issue uh, in doing exactly what you're doing in this book. That is, you know, recuperating these indigenous knowledges and their transmission into the main uh, dominant Europe, uh, imperial culture, uh, which is the role of the imagination, of those speculations, of of the silences in the record that kind of require us to use our uh, creativity to try to figure out how things worked. I wonder if you could say a few words about the role of that in, in your own work and how you see, how you see its place in, in our scholarly moment. Yeah. I mean, I think, well, to use a really concrete example, the cover of the book is inspired by this embrace of, of the creative. Um, so I was reading um, Manuel Catan de Torres, um, Relación y Vista de Ojos. And in the text, he mentions that he sent his letter to the crown with a painting. And there's a huarismo in the letter that includes a, a you know, this numbering guide of all of the items in the painting. And it's really detailed, but the painting itself is lost. Um, 
But it was clear to me that if I were skilled as an artist, I could recreate the painting. Um, unfortunately, as my my daughter can prove, um, I have no artistic skill whatsoever. And so I had no hope of painting this from the description. Um, but one of the benefits of advising undergraduate students is that you really get to know your students as they progress through the major. And I had a student who had taken a couple classes with me and was double majoring in media studies with a minor in printmaking and studio art. And so I asked her if she'd be interested in trying to recreate the painting. And she was. And so we traveled to Spain together and we looked for the painting in a couple different libraries and archives. Um, but mostly we just walked around. We looked at painting in paintings in different museums and kind of got an eye for what a painting in the 17th century would have looked like in Spain and what a similar painting would have looked like coming out of Venezuela. And based on what we saw and didn't see in the archive uh, and in museums, and based on um, our reading of the text, the student, Rebecca Graham, painted the missing painting, and it's now the cover of the book. And I we start I start the book with a preface um, co-authored um, with Rebecca that basically talks about how a creative approach to archival silences, including you know, recreating document or recreating texts that are um, whose absence are testified to in other colonial sources could be a really interesting research avenue for us to explore um, as a profession. And it also um, opens up these larger possibilities for collaborative research with our students. And that project remains one of the um, single best things I've done as an educator. Uh, well, maybe I can try something like that with my students. Uh, that sounds pretty exciting. Um, you know, so one of the things as a historian myself of colonial Latin America that I found very surprising in this book was the inclusion of copper as one of your four metals. So, you know, the book is divided by gold, uh, iron, copper, and silver. Uh, can you tell me the choice about the choice to include copper and, and what you learn by looking at this um, uncommon metal in, uh, in historiography? Can I ask why you were surprised by it? Well, just because unlike gold or silver, um, they, copper was, did not turn out to be a large economy in the colonial empire, uh, you know, until after independence, uh, after Spanish American independence, that it become important in, uh, Chile as, as you know. Um, and so that's why, uh, you know, it's less iconic of the empires. Oh, I see. Um, yeah, I guess iron plays the same role then. I mean, the base metals form the heart of the book in that they're the middle. Um, and then precious metals kind of bookend both of those. Um, I, I think the role of copper in the book is to tell the story of possibility. Um, you're absolutely right that none of these plans or schemes or, or projections um, bear any fruit during the period studied in the book. But the minds that I analyze um, as part of this projector, Don Manuel's um, scheme for uh, Cocorote, become part of the estate of Simon Bolivar. And then in that sense, um, these minds that are you know, the home of uh, 
um, an imagined autonomous enslaved community in the 17th century with a design um, for a very different model of enslavement than what we see in large-scale monoculture plantations or um, Mita systems um, have a role in the kind of imagining of empire, I guess, for lack of a better word. Imagining in the sense that this is what 17th century actors thought might be possible during a moment of global financial crisis. And um, and also with the copper, you tell the story of the, the many translations and uh, reiterations of the story of Cabeza de Vaca. Um, and I find that to be a very illuminating example of, of how knowledge is uh, uh, erased, uh, misconstrued, and, uh, and transforms as it moves through space. But I'll, we can leave that example for... Uh, for readers to find when they find the book. Uh, one question I had, though, is there's a, several times in the book you mentioned that there's very good reason to believe that uh, metallurgical knowledge coming from Africa is also uh, getting into uh, European uh, imperial uh, production and also European uh, imperial knowledge. And uh, but that this has been uh, both you know difficult to tease out, um, and it maybe needs to be left for future scholars. And I, I'm wondering if you can say a little bit about why that is a particularly difficult topic. Yeah, I think um, one of the reasons is just the tensions between archaeology and history. Um, I think historians, uh, and I'll include myself as one, even though I'm not actually trained as one, um, I think we're getting better at material cultural analysis and visual analysis, um, but we still privilege the text, um, which is difficult when we don't have the kinds of written documents that we would need to have in order to tell these stories. And it's difficult because the material cultures uh, in the case of African metallurgy, are not always well preserved. Um, Candace Goucher has a really great article on African metallurgy in the Atlantic world, um, and she's found some sites that are very well preserved and others that have almost no material traces. And there's a similar methodological tension in the linguistic remains. Um, you know, I haven't found a text like Barba's book for African metallurgical knowledge. And so my methods of mining the language just don't give me access um, to those ways of knowing. I am optimistic, though, that my book and the methods that I've developed here might um, contribute to future research. I'm thinking of um, Sarah Johnson and Christina Mobley and Jim Sweet and their work with Congo and Haitian linguistics in other domains of scientific thought like agriculture. Um, and they've shown that it's it's possible to work with those vocabularies and to document African and African diasporic knowledge production. And hopefully that will become possible then in other vernacular sciences. Um, but for the purposes of my book, um, I didn't get any of those sources you know, in the time that I would have needed in order to write those stories. But I would love to see this book inspire that kind of work in our field. Yeah. 
uh, can you reflect a little bit on how you think your book um, uh, helps us rethink the Spanish Empire and and what it means historically? Oh, so just a little question. <laughs> yeah. Um, well, I mean, the truth is, I have no idea. I I would be honored if people read it. Um, this is my first time writing a book, so I, I don't really know how this works. You know, you spend, um, what is this, seven years working on something and you never really know how it's going to be received in the world. Um, my hope is that the book will do for other scholars what their work has done for me uh, in terms of helping me think about the role of creativity and conjecture um, in filling in the gaps in our archival silences and omissions in giving us a sense of the Spanish empire as this really contradictory enterprise in which a multilingual assemblage of cruel political and economic power exerts its will upon the lives of women and men throughout the Atlantic and Pacific worlds. And also is this flexible system where women and men make their lives in ways that are meaningful to them. Um, you know, I think that's one of the, the big tensions of the Spanish empire is that the more you investigate it, the less it seems to mean on paper. And yet the imprint that it leaves on the lives of black and Brown women and men is enormous. That's uh, that's very well put, very beautifully put. Um, are there aspects of this book that we, we haven't talked about yet that you want to make sure are on this interview? Well, in, you know, I, I tried to reread it. I only got, um, halfway full, halfway through because, um, like a lot of parents, you know, right now I'm trying to work with some of our local leaders on grassroots issues of advocacy for racial justice, and I'm doing it without childcare. Um, so Unfortunately, I wasn't wasn't able to reread my own words um, as much as I had hoped to. But one thing that that struck me is um, the book is so different than what I had written at first. Um, my and it, it's better. My the process of working with my editors and especially Nadine Zimmerly um, have made this book into something that I never could have done alone. Um, I I wanted to call it cultural touchstones, mining, refining, and the languages of empire in the early Americas. And Nadine gave it this great title of mining language and also made me realize that a lot of what I said in the book is about the Americas, but has implications for the Portuguese empire in Goa um, and other colonized spaces. And so it really needed to be um, early modern Iberian world. And um, the organization of the book too I at first wanted it to be uh, gold, silver, copper, iron. And um, Marcy Norton, who signed the book as one of my readers, and then by signing her name, allowed me to follow up with her, which was really gracious and generous. Um, and I was able to then trade ideas with her as I revised the manuscript. Um, Marcy suggested that the book really needed to go chronologically in order to tell that kind of story which was not something that I had considered um, thinking more about the language and, and metaphor and discourse um, rather than change over time. But as I was rereading it for this interview, I was just struck by 
how right Marcy was and how right Nadine was and just how grateful I am to have such a scholarly community um, and, and such really wonderful mentorship to help with a book like this. Well, it is a, a beautiful product and it's one that I uh, very much uh, am glad to have read and will be an important part of my own bookshelf on, on colonial Latin American history. You, you, um, you mentioned in the beginning that your original research has become two books. Um, so what's the other one and, and where is that going? Um, well, I was supposed to be writing it this summer and, um, instead I have a one-year-old who, um, makes it a little bit hard to write, but my, um, tentative title for that book is women of corn, men of corn, the meanings of maize agriculture in the early Americas. And what I'd like to do is examine two regions of the new world where, um, one where women grew the crops and one where men grew crops. So the Algonquin speaking Chesapeake and Mayan speaking Mesoamerica. And I'm interested in the uh, similarities and differences in agricultural technologies and techniques that were used in both regions, but also the ways in which colonial writers like Thomas Harriet and Diego de Landa understood and didn't understand those kinds of agricultural practices. And I envision, uh, the book ending with a study of what happens when Harriet's work is edited by Hacklett um, and what happens when Delanda circulates in these recopilaciones. How do images of indigenous gender and agricultural technologies um, make their way into an, an Atlantic world of print? And so in, I, I imagine that book um, building from a lot of the groundwork that I've um, laid here in mining language in terms of um, thinking about vernacular sciences as sites of knowledge production, um, looking at colonial translations and mistranslations of indigenous knowledges, um, but doing so through a different kind of material, through um, corn rather than metals. Well, I really look forward to that book. I, I, I can't wait to read it. And I hope I get to interview you about it when it comes out. Well, I think it's going to take me 10 years, but um, I look forward to it, too. Okay. Uh, well, thank you so much for your time, Allison, and um, enjoy the rest of the quarantine. Thank you, Lance. You, too.